Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcast, where every week we take two different data points and tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor sitting in Berlin. As always, our resident expert, Adam Twos, is in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Okay, so the news data point this week is six. That is the number of parties that are going to be in the next parliament of Germany, Europe's biggest economy, after a national election last Sunday. The biggest party is going to be the center-left Social Democrats. The center-left Social Democrats have won the biggest share of the vote, narrowly beating out Merkel's center-right union bloc. Now, Social Democrats and that means that the most likely next chancellor is Germany's current finance minister, the 62-year-old Olaf Scholz. Olaf Scholz and his Social Democrats edging a small but definite lead over the Conservatives. So Scholz ran a campaign that in some ways was broadly reminiscent of Joe Biden's campaign last year in the United States. In some ways, he avoided controversial social issues. And in other ways, quietly, he was pushing pretty progressive economic ideas, uh, including increases in the minimum wage and really significantly increased government investments in combating climate change and building infrastructure. So now the question is, can Schultz get this agenda passed? And that's complicated by the number I mentioned at the top, those six parties that are crowding German parliament. So Let's start by getting a clear idea of who Schultz is, at least in terms of his views on economic policy. Adam, biographically, could we say there's one more thing that Biden and Schultz have in common? I mean, before this late life embrace of government spending, they both used to be identified with more austerity minded uh, centrism, right? Yeah, up to a point. I mean, that this late life thing has to be put in perspective, I think, because after all, Biden was born in 1942 and Olaf Scholz in 1958. So there's, they're really a sort of generation apart. Um, Scholz, by his own account, was a bit of a radical when he joined the Young Socialists in the 1970s and then became a law student. But, but to be honest, you, you weren't really very radical if you were joining the youth wing of the Social Democratic Party in the 1970s, which was being governed by the quite conservative Helmut Schmidt at the time. So he was, to that extent, always, as it were, something of a traditionalist. After that, I think it's fair to say, yes, that he kind of converged with the politics of what used to be called the third way in the 1990s. So looking for a middle ground between free markets on the one hand and social democracy, um, in the coalition with Angela Merkel that kept the SPD in power after 2005 as a junior rather than the senior partner, Schultz served as a whip before becoming Labour minister in 2008. And this is, I think, easily underrated as a phase in his career because that meant that he was the guy who was responsible for operating Germany's 
famous short time working system during the 2008 crisis. So that's where you don't allow workers to be fired. You keep them on the books, but part of their salary or wage is paid by the government. And he lengthened the period of payments for that system from six to 18 months and tidied Germany's labor market over that crisis. I mean, he didn't, of course, invent this model, but it's a, a sign of his pragmatism. So this centrist economic platform that you were describing that Schultz helped develop in the 1990s sort of became inherited by Angela Merkel. And by a lot of accounts, it helped contribute to Germany's economic success in the last 16 years. It sort of became an unquestioned consensus, keep sort of a, minding the, the welfare state, keeping it in check and keeping uh, debts in check as well. That also left social democrats searching for a new progressive identity. I mean, in some ways, that search seemed to come to fruition with Schultz himself after he was tapped as Merkel's finance minister. Um, what exactly was he up to at the finance ministry these past four years? I think I think there were sort of four hot button issues which defined that period. The first one folks may have heard about is the debt break, which was an amendment to the German constitution introduced in 2009 by Schultz's predecessor. And it's a sort of balanced budget amendment, which limits further borrowing. This is a huge success for the fiscal hawks, but it's also widely blamed for chronic underinvestment and Germany's too tight fiscal stance, uh, which has made it heavily dependent on export earnings. Now, Schultz has never challenged the debt break directly. It was part created by his own party, and it would have been political poison to be labelled as somebody who was irresponsible on debt. But already as mayor of Hamburg, he was lobbying for a constructive way around the debt break. When he moved to Berlin in 2017, he's found ways, if you like, to almost triple public investment despite the presence of the debt break. International corporate taxation is another key hobby horse. And here there really is a convergence with the Biden administration. This is his social democratic side. He strongly believes in taxing the rich, or at least he believes in the politics of doing that. Schultz's critics, and he has critics, observe that when it actually comes to disciplining tax evaders, uh, Schultz is rather less tough than one might, might wish. He's not the kind of politician Schultz to save his honour by falling on his sword. You know, he waves these issues aside until they come back to bite him. But that doesn't endear him to the German left who think he might really be a crony capitalist in sheep's clothing. But he's really a fixer, a doer. And finally, on that front, um, Germany's finance minister isn't just a German politician. He's a European politician. And this arguably is where Schultz has really been most important. In 2019, he was floating the idea of a common European fund to support unemployment insurance across Europe, a little bit on lines that he'd been experimenting within Germany itself when he was in Hamburg. That idea got shot down by Merkel. But all in all, his time at the ministry has been one of sort of culture change, subtle, slow, not necessarily below the radar. It was quite public. But he was talking to people, and, and in the interest of full disclosure, I was one of the people in outside Germany that he has engaged in conversations, quite public conversations, in which he's clearly trying to signal that he's a German finance minister who is self-confident enough to, as it were, engage in conversation with the rest of the world, present Germany's point of view, but also take criticism. So it's been refreshing, one has to say. 
Yeah, actually, Adam, I remember you appearing on stage with Schultz at the finance ministry. Uh, I was in the audience that day. Uh, uh, and so, yes, I can attest to him reaching out. Um, but I want to ask about this cultural change in economics. I mean, it sounds like it's been in the works with Schultz for a few years, but like a lot of places in the world, it must have really come out during the pandemic. I mean, in previous economic crisis, the finance ministry in Germany was really hard on debt. And how did Schultz handle this question? I mean, during the corona crisis? Yeah, it's important to remember just how serious things got in March and April. Uh, on top of the virus, Europe was mishandling the financial side. Uh, but then things really did take a different turn. The, the ECB is crucial here, the European Central Bank, they stepped in and started buying bonds. And then between the French and the German governments, a deal was done over a new look for a fiscal policy for Europe. And, and Macron and Merkel, of course, were in the spotlight for this. But it's an open secret that the work was done. The plan was prepared through the very close relationship that had been built up between Schultz's team at the German finance ministry and his counterpart, Bruno Le Maire, on the French side. But Schultz wasn't just active at the European level either. I mean, 2020 also brought out the crisis fighter in him at a national level. And the June 2020, you know, emergency package of spending and tax cuts and support uh, expenditures came to 130 billion euros. So this was the largest by far in, in German history. Uh, and then in 2021, they've added another 240 billion euros in debt, all told a substantial 370 billion euros in emergency related debt uh, uptake in Germany. So that's about 10% of GDP. That's not on the same scale as the US, but it's compared to Germany's track record, very considerable indeed. So how does all of this creative economic progressivism translate into a campaign platform for Schultz? I mean, what kind of vision was he selling in the election and why is that significant for the rest of the world? It was a strong record to run on, I think, you have to say. I mean, the SPD, his own party, were, were deeply uh, trailing in the polls. The, the slogans they ended up with were future respect Europe. I mean, Europe the box Schultz had ticked. Future was all about investment. I think respect is the interesting uh, phrase here. And again, this is part of Schultz's reaching out. Respect für dich. So this matters to you, for you. Respect you are entitled, as you are entitled to respect. What this means concretely is that he doubles down Schultz on the minimum wage, and we'll see how that goes. But that is the kind of policy that he advocates. Uh, he wants altogether the welfare system to be less punitive, means testing will be relaxed for hearts for benefits. Ultimately, they want a kind of what they call a Bürgergeld, so a citizen's money, uh, a sort of basic welfare payment. They also want taxes. Um, so to raise taxes on the top 5%, he didn't shrink from admitting to wanting to do that and introduce a 1% wealth tax. Another is corporate taxation. All in all, this is, was a successful strategy. And it's significant that this message is, I think, targeted above all at East Germany. It's in East Germany that there are 30% of the workforce that will really benefit from the minimum wage. And Schultz's seat in the Bundestag is in East Germany. Um, so he's chosen, as it were, to compete on the East German terrain. The Biden agenda, in some ways, resembles Schultz's platform. It wants big investments, combating climate change and infrastructure, and... Also in the United States, uh, we find this agenda stalled in Congress and it's threatening to collapse entirely right now. So the U.S. Congress, uh, unlike the Bundestag in Germany, only has two parties, though. So 
uh, how does this line up? The Republicans and Democrats, I guess, break down into their own warring factions? Yeah, I was really struck by this analogy, by, you know, the sort of kaleidoscope of global affairs in the, in the last week or so. It's like, you, you know, you struggle to grasp what's going on in Germany and then you pivot back to Washington. It's, oh my God, you know, there's, there's actually sort of a similarity here. Um, the difference, of course, is that in the German case, they have to do this as a package as they form a government, whereas in America, you invent this as you go along for each piece of legislation. And I don't think it's a coincidence, this number six. Um, you know, it could be five or it could be seven, but it's sort of six-ish. You see a sort of similar pattern in France or the Netherlands, you know, the first round of the French presidential election, uh, which will take place next year. There'll be five serious contenders in that too, because I think it sort of reflects the complexity of modern societies, right? They don't reduce to a single left-right division anymore. You can herd voters into parties as the US constitution and the practice of American politics, or for that matter, UK politics does. But beneath that formal structure of a two-party system, you in fact then have that complex social reality reflected as well. And so then when it comes to actually passing legislation, you can't escape it and you have to work it in Congress as you are having to do in Berlin right now. Okay, we will be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. So as we're watching the U.S. news about the debt ceiling, we figured we'd turn to another place that's been dealing with a lot of debt. Today's data point from beyond the headlines is basically zero. 
that was the rate of interest for much of this year on Greece's five-year bonds, basically a five-year loan to the Greek government. I say basically zero because it went a little bit above that, it went a little bit below, but basically if Greece wanted to borrow money this year, it hasn't had to pay any interest at all. And this was stunning because we're basically coming up on the 12-year anniversary of the Greek government standing in front of the world and saying it had no idea how much debt it had. And that tumbled all of Europe into a financial crisis that almost dragged the euro off of the cliff and almost sent the rest of the world spiraling into a renewed financial crisis. There are renewed fears that Greece is careering towards a chaotic debt default. Greece is not big, but the eurozone is one of the world's two great economies and it's in deep trouble. And here we are 12 years later and Greece can borrow money for nothing. I don't know. To me, this seems like a guy with a gambling problem walking into a bank that borrowed money from before and somehow walking out with a long-term really high quality mortgage. So I want to figure out what's going on here. Adam, can you help me here? Uh, did I just miss what happened in Greece in recent years? It is kind of miraculous. I mean, no one would have guessed, I think, that at the 12th year anniversary, we would be talking about this issue. Um, yeah, Greece was in a financial crisis that almost took the Eurozone down. Um, but in the period since then, it, it has been subject to a real kind of boot camp crash diet in financial terms. It's actually been running government surpluses, or at least was, from 2016 through 2019. So it was paying back debt. Um, its deficit has blown out again in the course of the 2020 crisis. It currently stands, the EU, Europeans estimate it'll come in at about 7.5% of GDP, which is a whopping deficit, which makes it more even more surprising that it's able to borrow at these derisory interest rates. The great news for the Greeks this spring was that they paid back the IMF uh, on a loan they owed. And even better news was that they were upgraded to junk. <laughs> I mean that for real. They were upgraded <laughs> from distressed debt into junk territory, which means they're a couple of notches away now from investment grade, which is where almost everyone else in the Eurozone is, and which would put them in a much higher category. So the Greeks are seriously a country with a huge debt pile, uh, well over 200% of GDP, a track record which is legendary, and a junk bond rating, and yet they're able to borrow money for, for virtually free at this point. You know, that sounds like the definition of a backhanded compliment. Congratulations, your debt is worth junk. How much money do you want? Uh, I mean, of course, this raises the question of why the financial markets are shoveling billions of basically free euros Greece's way. I mean, are the markets just getting suckered here? What do they see in Greece that I, the amateur, doesn't? Well, one thing you don't have to do, Cameron, is like place, say for sake of argument, $10 billion in, you know, convenient investments. And you investments. don't know that, Adam. But, but you don't know it, what I do in my but spare if you, time. If you were to have that problem, I don't think you'd be asking me this question, Cameron, because <laughs> if you did have $10 billion that you were desperate to invest in Eurozones, you would know that. The reason why the Greek stuff is attractive, which is because it hovers, generally speaking, on the positive side of just about zero, is that if you were to put your money into German five-year debt, you would be paying minus 0.64% 
for the Germans to to take your money as a piggy bank. It's really kind of difficult to understand what this means. What it means so the is investors pay the money to the borrowers and they get less back. Yeah, <laughs> they guarantee to get less back. So you, in fact, to get a hundred euros in repayment, you you spend about a hundred and one euros to buy that certificate that gets you a hundred euros back in five years' time. It's that's what negative yields mean. It's an extraordinary state of affairs. And that's what fundamentally drives this, is that Greek debt is relatively riskier, but therefore also relatively more attractive than German debt, which is basically zero risk, but also really requires you to pay quite a lot of money. Economists, if you scratch them, don't really have an answer to this question. No one really fundamentally understands why interest rates are as low as they are right now. It's an absolute mystery. Even, you know, whether you're talking about high risk borrowers or low risk borrowers, everyone more or less in the world right now is at unprecedentedly low interest rates. One thing we do know, to cut a very long story short, is that one thing that helps is that central banks are buying this debt. Central banks are buying it because of the complex fallout from the 2020 crisis. And the more they buy, the more attractive the debt is, the less the borrowers have to pay to induce people to hold it. So all of those factors come together in producing this stunning effect of the Greeks being able to borrow for virtually nothing. Should all this be worrying the European Union? I mean, the last time Greece borrowed more than it could repay, we, we just mentioned this at the top, it led to a continent-wide crisis. I, I, I mean, financial markets started worrying whether other European countries also had problems like Greece. There was talk of pushing Greece out of the EU entirely, right? So what is the EU's attitude to all this now? Should they be intervening somehow to monitor Greece to make sure everything is in order? Or... I don't know if the financial markets are willing to give Greece money. Does Europe just pat itself on the back and say, OK, we've rehabilitated Greece. All good. We don't need to do anything here. Politics is all over this. About 80 percent of all of the outstanding Greek debt is owned by official creditors, including the EU, the IMF and other actors like that. Of the bit that's left, a large slice is now owned by the ECB. So politics is is everywhere here. Part of the solution to the Greek debt problem is to keep interest rates low, because if interest rates are this low, all the Greeks have to do is service the principal. They just pay, they pay back the principal. They don't have to pay very much in terms of servicing the debt. And then, the, the I mean, Europe is all over uh, Greece's financial business. I mean, Greece is under what's called an enhanced surveillance system, which means that every year, like the IMF does, for instance, on a low-income developing country, the European Commission produces a report about Greece's finances. Greece went through the mother of all workouts in fiscal austerity terms from 2010 onwards, a, a, an apocalyptic uh, austerity program which slashed government spending and raised taxes. And right now, and this time horizon extends into the distant future, that this enhanced surveillance system has a glide path for the Greek debt, notionally at least, that extends to 2060. So for the next 40 years, the Greek public finances are under this, this supervision mechanism. So no, Europe is, is all over this. Adam, do you think it's just a matter of time until interest rates go back up? I mean, it seems like we already have indications of that. People are talking about inflation isn't it just a matter of time until the banks need to raise their rates? And then are places like Greece really screwed? 
Well, we might expect them to go up a little bit, but if you look at the long-run trajectory over the last 20 to 30 years, it's very unambiguously in one direction, and that's downwards. So we might see a flicker upwards from where we're currently at, but we don't expect any huge spikes, certainly not in the big advanced economies. If we did see them, it would be absolutely devastating, but it would be the reverse of what the big financial markets are signalling, because you can trade futures on these things, you can take contracts on interest rates into the far distant future, and there isn't a lot of smart money out there that's betting on that kind of scenario. But you're absolutely right. To the extent that the interest rate level moves in the advanced economies and the rich economies, the people that get squeezed, get squeezed out of the market, the poor countries around its edge. And for them, the terms of borrowing become really difficult. The phrase to look out for here in the news coverage is taper tantrum. So as the Federal Reserve reduces the juice that it gives to the American financial markets, will this provoke a tantrum in global bond markets. Finally, I'm curious what the absurdity of these low rates says about how financial markets are thinking about borrowers and their credibility. I mean, just to go back to my analogy from the top, if you or I walk into a bank, the first thing they're gonna do is run a credit check. They're gonna try to figure out our personal history with money. But right now, when it comes to countries and big companies, does that analogy just break down? I mean, with financial markets, when they're dealing with Greece, do they just not scrutinize the country's past? Is it just a bunch of wishful thinking going on? I don't think that's fair. I mean, um, all of the sovereign bond issuance in the world is, is rated by a whole posse of ratings agencies. The names will be familiar. Moody's, Standard & Poor's, for instance. And they conduct really in-depth analysis of, of the countries. They exercise a huge amount of power over them because shifting the bond rating changes the entire terms. And they rank countries much in the same way as individuals are ranked. So there are sort of broadly speaking three tiers, investment grade, which is B plus upwards, a bit like you know uh, college exams or, or high school grades. So B plus upwards in investment grade. And pension funds and people like that are authorized to put money into that kind of category of debt. Then there's junk, which is from the sort of B to the B minus range, which just means it's higher yield, uh, higher risk. And then there's the C category, which are distressed frontier market, very high risk. And so at one end of the spectrum, you have the Germany's, the Australia's, the Switzerland's of this world, which are triple A rated. And at the bottom end, you'll have Argentina, Congo, Angola, classic serial defaulters. That is useful context, Adam. Worth remembering that Greece, its credit rating, places it somewhere between America and a place like Congo. Although I guess I should also say that we're not in offering investment advice here. Although some of those returns seem pretty attractive. Neither of us have the $10 billion to make those bets, but we'll leave it there for now. And that'll do it for today's Ones and Twos, Foreign Policies Economics Podcast. I'm Cameron Abadi. And I'm Adam Twos. Ones and Twos is written and produced by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. Rob Sachs and Laura Rossbrow Tellum edit our episodes. Dan Efron is the executive editor for podcasts at FP. And so we're a few weeks into it. And we're already getting some great responses from folks online. Keep it coming, please. We're starting to get some listener ideas through our email page. That's podcasts at foreignpolicy.com and also through our Twitter feed. Uh, as always, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple 
or your favorite podcast app and give us a review. Those also really help. Thanks again. We will see you next week. Okay. Bye. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.